0: The following interview with Ray Pete was recorded on May 18th, 2012. If you'd like more information about Dr. Raymond Pete, you can go to his website raypeat.com, r a y p e a t dot com, where there's many interesting articles for free available for your enjoyment. Also, if you're interested in hearing this show again, uh, many politics and science shows are posted at Radio Numeral 4 All.net, Radio Number 4 All.net, and when you get there, search for Politics and Science. Hello, and welcome to Politics and Science. I'm John Barkhausen, your host, and uh, today we're going to talk about some autoimmune diseases and some movement disorder dysfunctions. I'm intrigued by them not only because I have uh, friends that are suffering from these, but also because the medical world offers so little knowledge about the diseases and, and so little hope or practical knowledge in terms of treatment for what to do uh, to help people. I'm very happy that uh, Dr. Raymond Pete is here to join me again today. Uh, Dr. Pete has a PhD in biology from the University of Oregon and extensive knowledge of science history. Uh, There are many theories as to the causes of the the diseases and uh, one common factor that is present in all of them and that most people agree on is inflammation. Ray, I just want to start off by asking you uh, why is so little understood about these diseases?
1: Well, I think there's a lot more known than uh, the public is aware of. The medical journals aren't a good place to look. if you're just wanting to find out how much is known but if you uh, read widely in not only medical journals but uh, general science journals uh, you see that people have discovered really interesting things about all of them and that there are patterns that show up across the various diseases uh, that uh, I think really uh, things could be into practice more than they are, uh, and there are people uh, demonstrating uh, improvement in the degenerative diseases with very simple antioxidant supplements and creatine supplements and such that uh, you just don't hear about in the uh, New York Times stories about uh, advances in health of the I I think part of it is that uh, when a generic substance uh, looks like it might prevent or cure uh, one of these horrible conditions, uh, the drug industry isn't interested, and so uh, there's no uh, advertising money to be made by running uh, publicity about it.
0: Mm, so So nobody pursues it. Uh, Ray, can you explain where you're finding out this knowledge of of hopeful techniques to combat these diseases?
1: Um, A lot of it you can find right in uh, PubMed and uh, Google, Um, some of it in more obscure journals, but uh, there's enough to keep a person busy for years uh, just putting pieces together, like making a, a meaningful puzzle out of from the various lines of thinking um, like you uh, know if you follow one one disease over 20 or 30 years like Alzheimer's you'll see there are styles uh, focusing on the cholinergic uh, nerve death or the uh, accumulating fibrils amyloid and such and explaining that as a toxin that causes the disease, and uh, the various uh, different diseases, each one goes through its styles of what they think is interesting, but uh, the uh, pressure on funding the research and such pushes generally towards a genetic explanation that uh, makes a simple uh, drug solution conceivable, Uh, Like something to uh, stop that one genetic defect from taking taking its effect.
0: Uh, So, when you say when you say styles, are you talking about there's certain fads in research that that are uh, prevalent at certain times?
1: Yeah, yeah, definitely fads. Uh, But the um, the basic big fad that has lasted for a hundred years is the genetic explanation. Uh, like in Huntington's disease, it's uh, a certain repeat uh, that, that causes a, a series of glutamine uh, amino acids in the protein to, to increase, and that that creates uh, a, a protein that, that shows up as if it's doing damage. And <coughs> so the, the framework idea is that the gene expresses itself in a protein and the protein causes the the symptoms of the disease and so it's the idea that the gene is causing the disease but there are several ways of approaching that one is that uh, something is causing this uh, repeat to be formed in the the gene itself Uh, for example... They've noticed that generations, even though typically Huntington's uh, is thought to set in at the age of 40 or so, uh, they notice that the children of those people uh, develop about eight years earlier. And so each generation anticipates and and starts the condition earlier. Uh, So uh, there's there's something uh, causing that. repeat in the protein to yeah. increase each generation and, and the um, that, that is uh, something that's slow to uh, sink into the genetic causality uh, that things are happening right now each generation uh, creating a tendency to mutate in a certain direction uh, there were Many um, genetic theories that, that said that uh, mutations do have a directionality. And uh, they used to explain the growth of important uh, antlers on elk and swan as getting bigger and bigger because of some uh, tendency in the organism to go mm-hmm. in a certain direction. Uh, orthogenesis, they called it. But uh, that. Uh, was um, sort of vaguely anti-Darwinian and inclined towards Lamarckism and and so it dropped out but uh, the idea of a defect in the gene that that causes it to get worse and worse quickly with each generation is more acceptable because um, in immunology uh, that, that was A solution to how antibodies can adapt so quickly to any uh, conceivable uh, infection or or antigen. Uh, They said they have to adapt by mutating uh, so fast that they can evolve in just a few days to um, match whatever antigen they're exposed to. So this idea of almost directed mutation uh, got put into genetics by way of immunology. <coughs> and and there are uh, the um, trends in, in uh, a few uh, places. Uh, 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 John Cairns and Ted Steele are the people known to be working on the idea of directed uh, mutations in a constructive way. Just
0: yeah, I'm awfully confused by this because um, I think of uh, geneticists as saying, uh, in the past at least, that genes uh, were a permanent thing that were passed on from generation to generation and could not be changed easily. I mean, it um,
1: yeah, uh, the they um, they the, uh, have been open to the idea, but uh, they're they're still not seeing it as uh, anything deliberate or constructed, just a a way the defect uh, can develop, but it's a way to save the genetic causality, rather than seeing that the same thing causing the symptoms of the disease might also be causing the genes to change in the same direction. Uh, That's what we don't want to see, is a link between the way the gene changes and the function of, of uh, the protein in the life of the individual organism that's where it implies Lamarckism
0: you you mean that the organism is directing the, the, the gene mutation
1: yeah yeah that or that something is is causing the organism uh, on the cellular not genetic level to change at the same time the gene that regulates that cellular function is changing in the same direction. They they shouldn't be coordinated that way, so that uh, the the function and the gene change simultaneously, or even with the information going from the function into the gene. Because that on. would
0: mean that the organism uh, is is a purposive uh, being on the. Uh, evolutionary level
1: Um, (laughs) yeah exactly that's the whole point ever since uh, uh, the anti-Darwinians in the 19th uh, century uh, Weissman in particular uh, they they hated the idea that uh, things could be changing meaningfully or purposefully and uh, wanted to say that uh, there is no real change and genes were the way of, of proving that uh, you might get a different mixture of traits but the traits are eternal and the gene gene is what uh, causes that uh, one of the uh, people questioning this uh, James Shapiro uh, was working along in ordinary bacterial genetics and he noticed that uh, individuals exposed to an antibiotic could become resistant to it and that they could pass that information on uh, very uh, intentionally to to their neighbors. And it could even cross cross, uh, varieties of one bacteria to another and spread it through whole systems. And uh, that got him thinking about uh, this idea of purposive change and uh, he's uh, proposed uh, the, the um, that the organism does genetic engineering along the lines of what Barbara mcclintock was talking about. But he he says this is the general uh, way genetics works in the organism. That the organism is its own genetic engineer uh, doing
0: changes for its own benefit. Yeah, I I can believe it because I was looking today at a physiology book trying to understand the nervous system because a lot of the diseases we started off talking about are diseases of the nervous system and it's uh, pretty phenomenal if you open up an encyclopedia and and look at how the nervous system is laid out, it's it's an awe-inspiring system and the idea that some scientists and philosophers think that that happened by random uh, evolutionary trial and error uh, is uh, seems impossible to my mind. But
1: yeah, the, um, the establishment uh, genetics biology uh, system, including most of medicine, uh, are attacking uh, Jane Shapiro with his uh, application of, of the Barbara McClintock uh, way of thinking. Uh, and uh, wh- what was your point? The complexity, the complexity. and the organization of it is. If, yeah. Uh, um, randomness is such a deep part of their uh, way of thinking that uh, they are accusing Shapiro of uh, being a, a creationist. Uh, and he says, well, the creationists uh, sometimes speak very reasonably. And sometimes the the uh, so called neo darwinians don't speak so scientifically and reasonably, and so he is attacking the the, the science invoking creationists because sometimes their arguments are. Possible. Yeah,
0: I mean, I don't personally buy into the father figure in the sky looking down on us all, but I d-
1: no. But he he's saying that the the organism itself is yeah creating
0: that life. Uh, has intelligence, you've said before, and I, and I, yeah, that to uh-huh. me is a um, has mm-hmm. the ring of truth to it because, uh, as you look around the world and see uh, basically, as you say, the world organizing itself, it's a good example of the intelligence all around us. And one of the things that sort of interested me that Carl Lindegren said in his book Cold War in Biology, which was that in order to uh, practice science back in the 40s and 50s in the United States, it was very helpful to profess some kind of belief in a god uh, in order to keep your job. He said that professors were afraid to say they were an atheist or agnostic.
1: Um, yeah, all of my professors uh, were church goers, uh, which used to be, uh, in the 19th century, uh, They tended to be agnostics, uh, biologists specifically, but uh, it it really did get a a, a religious uh, boost uh, in the 1940s with the anti... uh, They considered it uh, anti-materialist, but what it was was a different kind of materialism, a a randomness-based materialism rather than the idea that, that material is part of the purposive, intelligent life process.
0: Uh, Bringing this back to our uh, topic today and uh, talking about uh, the inflammation that appears to be present in all of these diseases we're talking about, whether we're talking about amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, which is ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, or multiple sclerosis, which you've written about quite a bit, or rheumatoid arthritis, um, all these uh, diseases, which they don't really have any uh, known uh, cause or cure for, involve inflammation. And maybe you could outline for us how uh, science has perceived inflammation over the years.
1: Uh, um, in, in the um, middle of the 20th century, there was a heavy uh, concentration on inflammation as a reaction to mm-hmm. infection. Uh, to the extent that uh, about uh, 40 years ago, 35 years ago, when I uh, mentioned to a, a recent graduate something about sterile inflammation, uh, she wouldn't let me continue and said uh, that there's no such thing as sterile inflammation. But uh, in before, people were demonstrating that you could extract something from infectious organisms that would create inflammation even if it was sterile and then uh, with radiation experiments they found that radiation inhibited inflammation or trauma uh, completely sterile uh, burns uh, uh, shutting off the blood supply creates inflammation and I think the the only uh, way to approach inflammation is to, to think of it as the Uh, a gap that that shouldn't exist between the demands made on the cells or the tissue and the resources to meet those demands. If you uh, traumatize or overstimulate a tissue or if you don't provide enough uh, sugar and oxygen and carbon dioxide uh, to meet that stimulation, to hold the stimulation under control, then uh, things go wrong and uh, the tissue becomes edematous uh, and uh, chain reactions happen that, uh, that can kill the tissue or that, that uh, if the organism can uh, manage to uh, recruit enough systems to provide uh, sugar, for example, and to, to stop the excitation, then it can heal. A little inflammation rouses the organism to um, uh, cause regeneration. Uh, otherwise, it can uh, lead to fibrosis and atrophy. Mm-hmm. So uh,
0: using so let's use an example of one of these diseases, like uh, multiple sclerosis. The myelin sheath, uh, for some unknown reason, uh, according to the medical authorities, becomes worn away or taken away. And the nerves stop functioning and people start having trouble with motor control. They say it's it's caused by inflammation. And how does that relate to, to your Anything idea? Anything
1: that causes uh, a lack of energy uh, will cause a tissue to swell up, take up water. And as it swells up, uh, the um, the tissue tries to renew itself. Cells are always renewing themselves in a, a tremendous the process of taking down the old stuff and putting up new stuff. Um, uh, for example, someone had said that during the night, I, I think it was 60% of our, our molecules in our brain, the, the fat substance, that is a big part of the brain, 60% of them are totally resynthesized every night. And uh, the, just an hour after death, uh, the uh, uh, a massive amount of, of the brain substance has has decomposed because it isn't constantly being uh, reconstituted so you have to think in terms of, of a healthy stable organism as being in extremely intense uh, turnover processes and and so if you cut off the energy supply uh, the first thing that happens is um, the cell takes up water and that excites the uh, restorative process to run faster, but if it takes up more and more water, uh, that shifts the whole direction, and the cell uh, at a certain stage of excitation will de differentiate and um, turn in or try to turn into a stem cell to um, grow new tissue in the, as a healing process. And if there's even less energy, then that process stops. But when you have just a chronic, slight energy deprivation, you get a chronic, slight uh, edema. And that uh, edema, one of the things that happens is that the, the myelin swells up. And uh, in, while it's being taken down, it isn't being resynthesized uh, efficiently. Uh, thyroid, progesterone, pregnenolone, uh, and. Saturated fatty acids are things that support the, the uh, reforming of the myelin. And when the energy is down, for example, thyroid is low, then you can't make the pregnenolone and, and progesterone, and, and uh, so you just can't synthesize it as fast as it's being taken down.
0: So it's it's really in, um, it's a condition where you're you're put under stress and you don't have the energy resources to uh, keep rebuilding yourself under that stress.
1: Um, Yeah, and it's just remarkably similar uh, in the the processes in the degenerative brain diseases of aging or the development of cancer or of uh, uh, deforming arthritis, uh, uh, inflammation, chronic inflammation like pancreatitis, hepatitis, uh, chronic kidney disease and so on uh, all the same processes are involved just in different proportions of energy supply and irritation or stimulation
0: Is that what Georgie referred to as the condition of being sick? <laughs>
1: yeah, no, uh, that was Hans Selye
0: Oh, uh, it was Hans Selye, thank you Yeah, and that's, and that's just a, a shortage of energy basically
1: uh, Yeah, I think the gap between stimulation and uh, energy resources uh, it uh, uh, it's been used to define excitotoxicity that kills brain cells, but it's really the same process in your pancreas or kidney or skin uh, anywhere exactly the same uh, energy systems slight differences in the particular proteins that are like in huntington's disease there's the uh, that polyglutamine uh, repeat that uh, accumulates, but uh, it's really uh, just a a symptom of of an inflammatory state with a particular history that that leads to that being a problem. But the fact that it usually waits until you're 40 years old means that uh, the same with rheumatoid arthritis or uh, Crohn's disease or any of these chronic inflammatory things, they uh, almost never develop in little kids, uh, it takes a while uh, being exposed to certain environments for each kind of thing to develop. But th- there are a few common factors in in the organism and this environment that are involved in almost all of these. Um, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's disease, uh, uh, Lou Gehrig's disease, Huntington's, uh, the various uh, nervous dimensions. Dementia diseases and... and,
0: uh, MS.
1: uh, Yeah. And and, Mm -hmm. uh, the skeletal uh, nervous uh, inflammatory uh, diabetes even uh, involves uh, inflammation and and the failure to regenerate properly. The the, uh, beta cells are being killed in the same way that brain cells are being killed, basically. uh, And instead of making uh, insulin... As, as the cells are renewed, the cells are killed as fast as they're renewed, so they stop making insulin. But if you stop killing them, then they can start making insulin again. Same with the brain. If you, if you stop killing the brain, it's always in a process of repair and regeneration. I, I might have mentioned uh, a man with um, ALS that I talked to about, oh, I guess, eight or ten years ago, uh, 70 years old. And uh, he had had all the best uh, neurologists uh, examine him, and he absolutely was c- convinced he had the uh, disease, disease and, and was declining the same as other people he met in the neurology offices, and uh, he decided to uh, start doing things to stop inflammation and support repair, and he did them consistently for a few months while still declining but then he stopped declining and within a few months was repaired Uh, uh, it was less than a year uh, of the whole process and people he he had met in the neurology offices went ahead with the same rate of decline and uh, were totally disabled by the time he was totally well
0: that's impressive so One of the things you've talked about in terms of uh, helping your body rebuild from conditions like this is uh, basically a very simple thing, just keeping your blood sugar up. uh, Maybe you can describe what happens when somebody is low on blood sugar. Reading you, talking about what happens, basically this uh, catabolic effect that happens in your body just from low blood sugar, to my mind, is pretty convincing about how important it is to keep your blood sugar up.
1: Um, You know, um, the first thing when your blood sugar falls because your liver hasn't uh, stored enough glycogen to turn into glucose Uh, the first reaction is for adrenaline to increase to try to squeeze more glycogen into your circulation for your brain primarily Uh, and when the glycogen is absolutely gone the adrenaline uh, keeps activating uh, the breakdown of fat and provides increased amounts of circulating fat to make up for the uh, the, the lack of sugar but after uh, the fat becomes a source of energy uh, your cells still need some sugar uh, to uh, maintain their basic processes and so they turn protein into sugar and to do that uh, they increase cortisol which uh, breaks down uh, muscle, skin, thymus gland thymus is the first to go and uh, uh, the cortisol will eat up your muscle and skin and immune system uh, pretty quickly uh, to feed your heart lungs and brain to keep them alive and so every time your, uh, your blood sugar falls you're uh, shifting over to fat metabolism and uh, breaking down uh, protein that uh, your muscles are one of the places that store glycogen. So as your muscles get smaller, then more burden is put on your liver to um, keep your blood sugar steady. And and that makes your liver progressively uh, suffer. And uh, eventually it gets to the point that your brain isn't uh, getting... uh, either the right energy or the right kind of energy um, but one of the things that happens with aging is that we progressively uh, from the time we're born at birth we're very highly saturated in our fats uh, because they've been formed from glucose in utero and we can only make saturated, unsaturated, and omega-9 uh, unsaturated fats uh, when, when we're supplied with either uh, uh, sugar or protein. But once we start eating in the ordinary environment, our tissues uh, start loading up on the polyunsaturated from the environment. By the time a person is 40, uh, the brain is pretty full of uh, uh, either the arachidonic acid series or if they um, have eaten a lot of fish, Uh, there'll be uh, uh, mostly the the long highly unsaturated fats will uh, mostly be the DHA type of uh, fish oil derived uh, omega minus three fats and even uh, with a pretty average diet uh, the old person's brain is very highly biased towards the DHA type fats and um, if you look at Parkinson's disease, uh, their favorite uh, genetic uh, protein that uh, some some people like to say is the cause of Parkinson's disease, uh, synuclein is is the Parkinson's equivalent of the uh, glutamine repeat of Huntington's or the amyloid or tau fibrils of of uh, uh, Alzheimer's disease. Uh, each disease tends to have its own uh, protein that, that goes haywire. In the case of Parkinson's, it's the uh, alpha-synuclein. And uh, DHA, the um, fish type of um, unsaturated fat, uh, causes the synuclein protein to um, change to its toxic form that that appears in Parkinson's disease. And saturated fats uh, tend to protect against that. So that very clearly in in Parkinson's you can see the, the role of fat in inclining the brain towards that degenerative change in the protein. And uh, since pretty much everyone in the environment accumulates these uh, highly unsaturated fats especially in the brain but in all tissues with aging uh, by the time uh, you're 30 or 40 uh, you become more and more susceptible to all of the degenerative inflammatory diseases very much in proportion to uh, to the unsaturated fats and you can find the breakdown products uh, corresponding to the seriousness of Alzheimer's disease or Huntington's or multiple sclerosis. Uh, uh, The specific breakdown products, such as acrolein, uh, which comes largely from the omega-3 fats, uh, uh, the um, various reactive breakdown products show that these unstable fats are breaking down at an increased rate in the degenerative brain conditions
0: I see and uh, you've also uh, in that sort of cascade of bad effects from low blood sugar after the free fatty acids are released you said that uh, actually pulls down your whole uh, thyroid system and maybe you could talk about that
1: um, yes a, a series of studies in France uh, about 30 years ago 25 to 30 uh, showed that exactly in proportion to the number of double bonds in the fat increasing from a purely saturated fat such as stearic acid or palmitic acid uh, through oleic acid up increasing with linoleic, even more with linoleic and uh, greatly with the uh, the, the uh, five and six double bonds uh, each increased double bond impairs the thyroid function at the level of secretion, transport, and response. Uh, They looked at at, uh, four different systems, uh, different kinds of, of response in the cell, but every one of these was impaired in proportion to the degree of unsaturation of the free fatty acids in the blood.
0: When was that study done, Ray? Uh,
1: in the eighties, uh, in, in uh, uh, Annals of Endocrinology, uh, in, uh, a French journal.
0: Well, they are uh, traditionally the um, and the, up into recent history the the kings of using saturated fat in their cooking. Uh, French cuisine is known for its use of butter.
1: Uh, well, the, the French have uh, they have fallen for the. Uh, propaganda against saturated fats and uh, 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 cholesterol and so on uh, to the extent that uh, some of their famous uh, fat researchers were convinced that giving a fish oil supplement to pregnant women would make their babies smarter, even though animal studies showed that in proportion to the unsaturation of, of the fat in the pregnant animal's diet, the baby's brains were smaller. And less able to learn, but anyway, the French uh, fed some pregnant women uh, the unsaturated fats while measuring the uh, fetus's ability to uh, react to sounds uh, applied to the uh, abdomen. And they found that, contrary to what they believed would happen, uh, the learning was impaired by the. Uh, Diet with more of the highly unsaturated fats. And when the babies were born, in line with the uh, animal experiments, their growth was retarded.
0: Hmm. Well, that seems really immoral to be testing that theory out on uh, infants and their mothers.
1: I mean, um, well, the publicity of the animal studies has uh, pretty much suppressed the fact that uh, these fats didn't have... Uh, consistently good effects on brain and eye development, but what got politicized were the few studies showing uh, what were interpreted to be uh, good studies, and on the basis of that, the um, uh, baby food industry was allowed to add these things to uh, their powdered milk uh, for making baby formula, but even in the powdered milk, (laughs) they're so unstable uh, that breakdown products, toxic uh, oxidation fragments, are just tremendously increased in these baby food additives, but still the, the publicity is such that, that they're promoted as protective.
0: So currently, as it stands today, uh, baby formula that people are using has the uh, DHA oils in them?
1: A lot of them do. I don't know if there are some without it.
0: Yeah. That's a little discouraging. Yeah, I can see adults, you know, going along with different fads and trying things out for themselves. But when it's when you start experimenting with uh, infants, it seems uh, like not a very good idea. One of the
1: idea. things that happens at the same time these unsaturated cats are accumulating in the body is that the ratio of estrogen to progesterone in in the body is increasing, uh, so that uh, by the time a woman is 40, uh, she has a, in an absolute sense, her estrogen is even higher than it was when she was 20. But even even worse is that uh, her progesterone has decreased, so the ratio is shifted very powerfully in the direction of estrogen. And uh, estrogen happens to uh, synergize with the polyunsaturated fat so that women have more DHA, circulating in their blood and these uh, polyunsaturated activate the action of a given amount of of estrogen and at the same time interfere with the production of progesterone and suppress uh, thyroid which has the same uh, bias. Uh, Lower thyroid increases estrogen, decreases progesterone. But the estrogen industry has uh, convinced most doctors that estrogen is good for the brain and for preventing heart disease and strokes and so on so that when the Women's Health Initiative kind of pointed out that estrogen supplements increased dementia heart attacks and strokes and uh, uh, things that uh, reinforced what animal studies had shown uh, the medical establishment took uh, two or three years to respond and come back and say what must have been wrong with that women's health initiative study to incriminate estrogen in dementia and, and uh, heart disease
0: that's what they're saying now uh, that the study was wrong
1: um, yeah, the very heavy propaganda to improve the sales of estrogen which dropped off drastically when that study came out But yeah. that was
0: a very convincing study
1: um, yeah, especially because it, it absolutely corroborated uh, in a, not not a too strong way, but it was absolutely in line with the animal research going back 50 years before then.
0: And these diseases we're talking about today, they affect women way more than they affect men. I think MS is 10 to 1, and I forget what ALS is. But, um,
1: it, even Alzheimer's, uh, in the 90s it was already... Uh, well documented that women had two or two and a half times the incidence of um, Alzheimer's disease as men Uh, and in spite of that uh, the people who wanted to sell estrogen said well uh, that's because women's estrogen declines with aging but in fact uh, by the age of 40 it has increased tremendously and that's when the brain damage is being done by the, the bad ratio of estrogen to progesterone
0: I know you've covered this before, Ray, but explain how it is that people think estrogen is declining when it actually isn't. It's it's in increasing, and the tests just don't pick it up.
1: Uh, well, one thing is that uh, the um, estrogen is um, stuck when it's in the cells working. It's bound to the things they call estrogen receptors. And uh, progesterone's effect, which, which should... Uh, rise right after ovulation, there should be this huge excess of progesterone. Progesterone destroys, decomposes the estrogen binding proteins and activates enzymes that inactivate estrogen, getting it out of the cells. So if you're deficient in progesterone, you can't get estrogen out of the cells and it not only stays there, but it even uh, with its own action it tends to activate enzymes that create more estrogen so that your um, aromatase in your fat tissue and fibrous tissue and uh, various tissues increases making fat outside of the ovaries as you age. Even in a a young monkey they were studying uh, the estrogen output in the ovary and as a control they used the blood Uh, coming from the arm veins and found that the monkey's arm was producing more estrogen than its ovary was. And that that process increases with age. But uh, uh, most of the estrogen, when you're deficient in progesterone, most of the estrogen stays inside cells working, affecting the cells rather than getting out into the blood of where it could be excreted. Um, And so the only way you can really tell how much estrogen influence a person has when they're 50 years old is to uh, take a a snip of tissue and and analyze its estrogen content.
0: And on top of uh, our bodies producing more estrogen as we age, Uh, we have a huge environmental load coming down on us because many of the Chemicals we use uh, in our modern lifestyle are estrogenic and plus pollution is estrogenic and
1: um, yeah um, in the 1930s before the estrogen industry took off, uh, people were studying uh, what estrogen is and does and they found that soot is estrogenic and, and that uh, the same things that produce the estrogen effect. Produce inflammation and cancer, and that basically it's a process of cell excitation uh, followed or accompanied by blocking oxidative energy production, and uh, that that was pretty much covered up when the estrogen industry convinced doctors that estrogen was the female hormone that would prevent. Infertility and aging, and so on. Yeah, uh,
0: good for good for their business and bad for everybody else. Uh,
1: the interaction of estrogen as an excitatory thing with uh, the polyunsaturated fats, which are excitatory things. Uh, uh, these, besides producing inflammation and blocking energy production, uh, they activate other uh, systems. Uh, for example, the glutamate, glutamic acid, uh, that is why monosodium glutamate uh, produces brain injury uh, because that excites cells uh, to the point that uh, if there's not enough energy supply the cells will will die. But estrogen and the unsaturated fats uh, both activate this uh, glutamate excitatory system uh, and those interact, all of them, to uh, increase the, uh, a set of enzymes. The, the transglutaminase is the enzyme that's involved in celiac disease, uh, the gluten sensitivity disease. Uh, and and that the, uh, this enzyme is normally involved in maturing uh, cells that are under the influence of stress, as in uh, the surface of the skin. When it's uh, maturing into a hardened keratinized layer, or, or in the uterus, as as estrogen is causing the the lining of the uterus to uh, mature and cause keratinized cells to form. Um, but in the brain, uh, this excitation from unsaturated fats, lipid peroxidation, breakdown, and estrogen, and and the glutamic acid system, uh, these excite uh, the uh, formation of the transglutaminase and transglutaminase happens to form polymers and, and uh, fibrils and deposits of these various enzymes that are known uh, to um, accumulate in Huntington's, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, multiple sclerosis and so on. Uh, the um, tau protein for example in Alzheimer's disease uh, transglutaminase uh, activates uh, a reaction at the the end of the top protein or in various places with all of these other proteins that accumulate and form fibrils and the um, this enzyme works on amino groups which when the metabolism is healthy and producing uh, energy by by uh, the use of oxidative metabolism, it's producing a constant supply of carbon dioxide. And carbon dioxide spontaneously combines with amino groups, all kinds of amino groups. Every protein in the body uh, should have its supply of carbon dioxide, preventing the uh, action of enzymes such as transglutaminase, which would bind them and cause. Them to condense and form fibrils uh, and I suspect that in places uh, where estrogen is dominant or in the skin where it, uh, the cells are exposed to pure air uh, the carbon dioxide is displaced either by the effect of estrogen or just by the high saturation of oxygen and the absence of the carbon dioxide allows this transglutaminase uh, cross-link, inactivate, and uh, harden uh, the proteins. But when it happens inside your brain, uh, you get these abnormal deposits of protein that that should only happen uh, in uh, cells that are terminally differentiating and getting ready to slough off. And
0: your body's getting rid of yeah. 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 Um, so CO two is uh, very important to the health of the body. And
1: there was a survey in Nepal. Uh, at very high altitudes uh, they found uh, lots of, of sick people but they didn't find uh, the degenerative brain diseases that you would expect at, at lower altitude uh, poor populations and uh, I suspect that is because uh, when you adapt to high altitude your body retains a much higher level of carbon dioxide uh, your blood is is more in the carbamino state, but probably all your proteins are.
0: And you've you've said that uh, reduced thyroid function, not not having enough of the uh, active thyroid hormone, T3, if you don't have enough, that's when you start having trouble uh, not only with energy levels, but also the myelin sheath of your nerves can't regenerate without the T3. Is
1: that right? Uh, Yeah. Uh, The the first five people that I met who um, had a diagnosis of uh, multiple sclerosis, I was starting to believe there wasn't such a thing as multiple sclerosis because they all, all of those first five people had such classical symptoms of hypothyroidism. I, I pointed that out and when they took thyroid <laughs> their symptoms totally disappeared. <laughs> and uh, So they, it's very easy to confuse uh, hypothyroidism with multiple sclerosis. So in the um, few
0: minutes we have left, Raymond, uh, maybe you could just run over what are some of the simple things people can do to alleviate their symptoms or even avoid them entirely.
1: Um. Well, th- it's known that aspirin uh, prevents uh, most of these uh, degenerative conditions. People who have chronically used some aspirin are much less likely to, to have Parkinson's or, or Alzheimer's. And caffeine is, is another generally protective thing against inflammation, fibrosis, and degeneration. Uh, and uh, avoidance of the polyunsaturated fats, I think, is the basic and most important thing. And uh, avoiding antithyroid foods. Uh, the, the worst antithyroid foods are these polyunsaturated fats. Okay. And
0: uh, protein levels, keeping your protein level up?
1: Um. yeah. And um, gelatin seems to have a a therapeutic anti-inflammatory effect, so uh, eating the cheapest cuts of meat, uh, uh, bones, and skin. Uh, In the U.S., few people eat the skin, and since the the fat avoidance fad, uh, people uh, tend to uh, eat skinless chicken and so on. But uh, when when the animals are fed a good diet, uh, the skin fat is uh, more saturated, so pork rinds are a very good source of gelatin, and uh, if you boil a chicken, uh, even without the feet and other parts, the, the skin and bones will release a lot of gelatin, which is uh, an anti-inflammatory protective
0: uh, protein. And, and you mentioned how important it is to keep your blood sugar up to, to handle stresses. And how should one do that? I have a feeling that a lot of our problems today, at least in some people, is that they're avoiding sugar because it's gotten such a bad rap.
1: Um, Yeah, every day I hear at least one or two people (laughs) saying uh, what happened when they started eating sugar. One guy uh, this morning uh, said his hair stopped falling out a couple days after he started eating sugar with a a kid who was um, having seizures and uh, gone down to 112 pounds in just uh, two or three weeks is back up to his normal weight for eating something like eight or nine ounces of sugar added to his other foods. In, in a crisis, uh, sugar in itself, just a simple honey or sugar can be very therapeutic, but in, in general, you want to shift your diet towards fruit uh, rather than uh, grains uh, and starchy vegetables
0: just to finish up you were saying that uh, starches were a bad way to get sugar like wheat is bad and
1: uh, yeah partly because of the other things they're associated with but um, uh, they one of the things they do harmfully is um, to support bacterial growth the uh, poorly cooked starches or the more uh, undercooked vegetables and uh, complex forms of starch support bacterial growth, and the bacteria produce endotoxin, and endotoxin works with these other pro-inflammatory things. Uh, uh, some of the uh, structural changes uh, of the uh, degenerative proteins are uh, very similar to the the structure that uh, is defensive against endotoxin. So uh, some of them might be provoked by the presence of endotoxin as a defensive reaction. Um, but it, it's, um, it's well known that uh, the, um, the polyunsaturated fats uh, activate uh, their the prion uh, formation and so on, but uh, the unsaturated fats are are probably biologically Analogous to the endotoxin produced by the bacteria. Mm.
0: Yes, and uh, you've written a lot about the, uh, the relationship of uh, sort of maldigestion of, of food uh, creating a lot of the problems that we've been talking about or helping to uh, exacerbate them.
1: Yeah, and the, um, the unsaturated fats uh, contribute even at the d- digestive level because they interfere with protein digestive enzymes as well as after they get into
0: the bloodstream. Right. Well, we've uh, filled up the hour, Ray. It's gone very fast, and I really appreciate uh, you coming on Politics and Science again. And perhaps at some point we can follow up and get into some of the details of how uh, digestion does relate to disease, because I think that's something that the medical world doesn't cover at all.
1: Um, yeah, um, If you go back to the uh, mid-19th century, you see that medicine was really uh, making progress. And uh, then into the 20th century, the Russians were continuing digestive physiology. Uh, But uh, after about 1920s in the U.S., it was pretty much ignored.
0: All right, well, th- th- thanks so much for sharing your knowledge with us, and I'll give out your contact information when, when we're done.
1: Okay. All right, thanks, thanks a lot, Ray. Yeah, bye-bye. Mm-hmm. Bye.
0: bye you have been listening to an interview with Dr. Raymond Pete, recorded on May 18, 2012. More information about Dr. Pete's work can be found at raypeet.com. That's R-A-Y-P-E-A-T dot C-O-M. You'll find many, many articles all there uh, for your enjoyment and all searchable for whatever topic you're interested in. If you're interested in this interview or other interviews that are done by Politics and Science, uh, you can find some of them posted at their podcast page, which is radio allnet That's radio and then the number four and then all.net, radio 4 And when you get to radioforall.net, search for politics and science. I've been your host, John Barkhausen. I hope you've enjoyed this interview, and please tune in again next week for another edition of Politics and Science.